1945, George Orwell published a short little book called Animal Farm. Uh, he, it was a satirical tale against Joseph Stalin, and it's widely considered one of the best works of English literature in the last 100 years. Orwell says that Animal Farm is the history of a revolution that went wrong and of the excellent excuses that were forthcoming at every step for the perversion of the original doctrine. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the book or never read it or read it a long time ago and forgot, let me just give you the cliff notes of, of, the, of the story. Uh, it begins with a secret meeting of all the farm animals at Manor Farm, and they're captivated by a vision of freedom from their human masters. Uh, the animals begin to plot a revolution to take over the farm, which ignites one night when the farmer, Mr. Jones, forgets to feed them. Uh, the revolution is plotted and prepared by two pigs called Snowball and Napoleon. Uh, and then the animals successfully chase off Jones and his men, and they, um, they rename animal, uh, this farm Animal Farm, because now animals are in charge. Uh, and then after that, the animals draft these seven commandments to govern how they're going to live their life for all animals in this farm and make, make do with the newly, newly liberated farm. Uh, following the liberation of the farm and a successful harvest, uh, the pigs become the supervisors of the farm, mainly just because they're the smartest animals on the farm. Um, so Snowball begins drafting up plans to create a windmill to automate the farm and bring it into the modern age. And in the meantime, Napoleon gets power hungry. Uh, Napoleon enlists the support of another pig named Squealer uh, to be his herald and mouthpiece. And he tasks Squealer with convincing all the other animals in the farm that pigs are morally upright creatures and always right. As his thirst for power grows, Napoleon consolidates his power and he essentially becomes a totalitarian dictator. Uh, he ends up forcing confessions from innocent animals and he sentences them to death. And beneath a web of lies and deceit, these pigs end up breaking and changing every single one of the seven commandments they had originally drafted to govern how Animal Farm would govern and run. In the closing scene, the rest of the farm animals look on in confusion and horror as the ruling pigs sit around a table in camaraderie with the very humans they once hated. At the end of the day, the swine who led the animals on Animal Farm were no different from the humans. The closing lines of the book read, Twelve voices were shouting in anger. They were all alike. No question now what had happened to the faces of the pigs. The creatures outside look from pig to man, and from man to pig, and from pig to man again. But already it was impossible to say which was which. You see, the animals at Animal Farm had a vision to do and be something different. They were pursuing after a vision of freedom and liberation. They were pursuing after a vision of what they thought was a good life. But the pigs they chose to follow lost sight of leading all the farm animals into their promised land. At the end of the day, the swine just wanted to be like the humans they decried. And in the end, they weren't any different. You see, whenever we seek to live a life worth living, we need people to lead us and guide us and to tell us the way. So where do we go and to whom do we turn when we seek to live a life worth living? Who is our model? And as Christians, who leads us and guides us as we walk this path of the Christian life? Who do we trust to lead us in the way of Christ? It's an important question, and it's an important question which Christians have been asking for a really long time. Who do we trust to lead us in the way of Christ? It's an important question. It's also a really awkward question and sobering thing for me to preach about 
because I'm an intern at the church and I'm hoping to one day be a pastor. Um, and I, I don't really have anything clever to, to tell you why you should listen to me or trust me or anyone else who speaks from this stage. Um, but I do invite you to explore this question with me this morning uh, from Paul's letter to Titus on this topic. And also, if, if you're a guest with us today, or if you're not a Christian, I just want to acknowledge up front that this might be a weird sermon for you just to walk into. Um, it's a weird sermon for all of us to walk into, frankly. Uh, and whether you're exploring faith, or you're trying to find a reason not to have faith, or whether you're just here on vacation, um, I hope you can engage with this, and that it'll give you some things to think about which maybe don't often get addressed. Uh, so with all that said, I invite you to look with me at Titus 1, verses 5 to 16, and all the verses will be on the screen behind me. So Titus 1, verses 5 to 16. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, before we go any further, uh, I think it's important to understand a bit more about where Titus was when he got this letter from Paul. As we heard last week, uh, Titus was a friend and colleague of St. Paul. And at some point when Paul was traveling throughout the ancient world and spreading the gospel and telling people about Jesus, he and Titus ended up in Crete. Uh, now, Crete's location made it an ideal hub for sea trade and also for piracy. In fact, in the times of the New Testament, Crete was renowned for piracy and intercity rivalries and warfare. Uh, the Cretans were also considered to be pretty full of themselves like him. They claimed that all the great gods were originally born in Crete, and to the horror of many Greeks, Cretans also claimed that Zeus was not only born on Crete, that he had died on Crete too. This claim caused many in the ancient world to believe that Cretans were just flat-out liars. And in fact, lying became such a hallmark of the Cretan culture that even a Cretan philosopher named Epimenides said, Cretans are always liars. One scholar explains that Crete was to, quote, a self-indulgent, belligerent, wild, immoral society. Sexual promiscuity, gluttony at feasts, and lying characterized what was widely held to be the way of life on Crete. 
To speak of a Cretan point of view was to speak of deception. So when Paul and Titus brought the gospel to Crete, they actually brought the gospel to an island full of pirates. It's like telling Captain Jack Sparrow about Jesus. That's the context of Crete, and that's the context of this letter. You didn't think that was in the Bible, did you? In verse 5, Paul writes, This is why I left you on Crete, so that you might put what was remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Titus remained in Crete to set up churches for recovering pirates. But to set up churches for recovering pirates, Titus needed to appoint leaders who can instruct and model the Christian life and who could lead former pirates into the way of Jesus. So what did Paul think it took to lead pirates into the way of Jesus? Well, he tells Titus in verses 5 to 8, to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, just as an initial observation, sort of, a, or duh, what Paul's describing is someone who isn't a pirate. But not just not a pirate, Paul's describing someone who actually sounds like a pretty normal Christian, right? I mean, there's nothing overly special about this description. Paul isn't describing some superhero varsity Christian who fasts three times a week and prays in tongues and casts out demons for breakfast. Like, no, that's not what Paul has in mind. The first thing Paul tells Titus about what a Christian leader should look like is someone who actually looks like a Christian, which is a good place to start. So what does it take to lead pirates into the way of Christ? Well, for starters... It takes walking in the way of Jesus and actually living and behaving like a Christian. It means looking and behaving like a Christian in their lifestyle and in the way they love and serve their family. It means not abusing or mistreating anyone. That means that a Christian leader doesn't excuse themselves from obeying Jesus' commandments. That means that Christian leaders are meant to put into practice what Jesus said and taught. Now, to go back to Animal Farm for a minute where they don't do any of that. It means that, as Christian leaders, we're not hedging or compromising on the rules which are meant to govern how we live. It means not trying to cover up failings and shortcomings and not trying to convince everyone of a lie. And it means not scapegoating someone as the source of all problems, but owning when we make a mistake. Now, I've um, I've gone back and forth about whether or not to say this, um, but I think it's important to say because the reality is that there have been a lot of Christian leaders who aren't putting into practice what Jesus said and taught. And just this last week, the New York Times ran a story about how a leading evangelical pastor sexually harassed and abused his secretary. And numerous other women have spoken out about him too. And the Catholic Church is still reeling from an unfathomable number of sexual abuse reports, often against children. And just two weeks ago, the Pope accepted the resignation of a cardinal in Australia who had conspired to cover up that sex abuse. And I could easily produce a long list of Christian leaders who have been exposed not just for for sexual abuse, but all kinds of abuse, be it physical, emotional, or spiritual. 
there have been a lot of pigs leading the way in the church. And it's possible that some of us have encountered abuse by spiritual leaders or know someone who has. And I want to say that if that's you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that happened to you. And I hope and I pray that what was done to you in secret can come into the light. And please know that God will not be mocked by them. God will not be mocked. And one day those people will stand before God and have to give an account of what they did. And I pray that you can find peace and healing, whether here or somewhere else. And I pray that someday Jesus will help you to trust again. I pray that you can find people who you can trust to lead you in the way of Jesus. Pastors and Christian leaders who are above reproach. And I pray that this church might be a, leaders where, a place where leaders are always above reproach. Because we can't afford to be otherwise. Uh, in, in verses 6 and 7, Paul writes that Christian leaders need to be above reproach. And some other translations sometimes say blameless. Um, and the word used here in the Greek is actually a pretty rare word. It's only used five times in the New Testament, and two of them here in this passage. And the word carries the idea of being without accusation. It's, it's a civil and a judicial sort of term, and it carries that meaning. It means that there are no charges that can be brought against that person. Not because they've paid everyone off or covered it up, but because they haven't done anything wrong. As one scholar puts it, it means that there are simply no grounds for an accusation of civic or domestic impropriety. And that's not just within the Christian community, it's within the larger context, too, of those outside of the church. Now, that, that doesn't mean that these people are, are perfect and sinless, because no Christian leader is perfect and sinless. And the only one who was is Jesus. But in the context of establishing churches in Crete, Paul and Titus were looking to find recovering pirates to lead other recovering pirates to Jesus. The people Titus was appointing to lead churches were recovering pirates too. And while to the best of my knowledge, I don't think any of us in leadership here at St. Pete's have ever been a pirate, um, the reality is that me and Alistair and Preston and the whole staff team, our leadership team, our Stephen Ministers, our, our community group leaders, all of us are recovering sinners. We need Jesus too, just as much as the recovering pirates in Crete. Because at the end of the day, a Christian leader is like a hungry beggar who's found bread. And in their excitement, now they're going around and telling everyone else about where they can come and find bread too. So what does it take to lead people into the way of Christ? It takes walking in the way of Christ and actually living and behaving like a Christian. It takes relying upon Jesus and pursuing after him. And Paul continues in verse 9, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So not only do Christian leaders need to look and behave like a Christian in their lifestyle and behavior, but they need to hold fast to the gospel. They need to cling to it. It's interesting to me that Paul feels the need to say the trustworthy word as taught. Because remember, he's writing 
about establishing churches for a society that prides itself on deception. There was no certainty in Crete. There was no honesty. And to this people who didn't know how to trust and who had likely been let down every single time that they had tried, to them, Paul says that the message about Jesus Christ is trustworthy and true. The gospel is true. And it's a truth upon which we can rest and stand. And it's the truth upon which every church must stand. Paul writes a similar letter to another one of his colleagues named Timothy, where he says in 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 17, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for a proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the messenger of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This book is trustworthy, Paul says. It's trustworthy concerning that which it intends to teach. And now there, there are two terms which people often use to describe what this means, and honestly, they often get misused too. Uh, and these words are infallible and inerrant. So to explain what that means, I'm just going to borrow uh, something that J.I. Packer says. J.I. Is, uh, is a theologian. He actually lives in Vancouver. He's taught here a few times for us. And he explains that infallible denotes the quality of never deceiving or misleading. And so it means wholly trustworthy and reliable. Inerrant means wholly true. Scripture is termed infallible and inerrant to express the conviction that all its teaching is the utterance of God who cannot lie, whose word, once spoken, abides forever, and that therefore it may be trusted implicitly. The Bible is not an inspired inquire within upon everything. It does not profess to give information about all branches of British railways. It was in England when he wrote this book. Um, it claims in the broadest terms to teach all things necessary to salvation, but it nowhere claims to give instruction in, for instance, any of the natural sciences or in Greek and Hebrew grammar. And it would be an improper use of scripture to treat it as making pronouncements on these matters. We must draw a distinction between the subjects about which scripture speaks and the terms in which it speaks of them. So the Bible is trustworthy concerning that which it intends to teach us. And Christian leaders are to hold firm to this and not let go, even when it's hard and unpopular. And it, it can take a lot of hard work trying to figure out what it is that Scripture intends to teach. But Christian leaders need to hold fast to Scripture, because nothing else can truly tell us about Jesus. Nothing else can legitimately and authoritatively tell us about what it means to be a Christian and how to follow Christ. Again, to go back to Animal Farm, when the animals established Animal Farm, they, they drew up seven commandments to govern the way of life and to protect the vision they had sought to live into. But as the story progresses, the pigs keep changing the rules. They amend them, and they add and subtract words and sayings to justify living in a way that's contrary to the vision of their farm. And in the end, they completely cast aside the words they used to live by those words which were meant to protect the farm and all the animals in it. 
They cast it aside and they end up being indistinguishable from the humans they once found so utterly deplorable. They completely gave up the vision they once held. And for us as Christians, holding fast to Scripture matters. Uh, the founder of the Methodist Church, John Wesley, once wrote, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God himself has condescended to teach the way. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. That's why here at St. Pete's, we preach from the scriptures. Because these words are the words of God, and we believe that they alone give life. And scripture can be hard to understand, and scripture can be hard to preach. But we believe that God has spoken to us through his word. And so we're going to seek to understand it and to follow it and to live our lives in light of it. And there's, there's another thing which pertains to this whole discussion of, of leadership and Christian leaders in Scripture, which I think is important to bring up, although I recognize I don't have nearly enough time to go into this at length today. Uh, so I can't elaborate on this right now, but it's the topic of women in ministry. Um, there's been a, a debate about whether or not women should be leaders in the church. And, and the debate gets very complicated very quickly, in part because there are legitimate biblical reasons for holding both perspectives. So as a church, we do believe that women can be leaders in the church and that they can be ordained as preachers and as pastors. And I want to stress that we hold to this from a biblical perspective, not, not a sociological one. We, we don't hold to this because it's fashionable and convenient. Rather, we believe it because we see evidence running throughout Scripture in support of it. Now, if that's something you're curious to learn more about, um, a couple of years back, we actually did two equip and build talks um, which are sort of an adult catechesis education thing we, we sometimes do. Um, and they explain the whole debate and how and why we believe what we do. So if, if you want to dig into this, um, if you go to equipandbuild.org, and I think you click on church history and then scroll all the way down, because this is an old talk, uh, you can find it there. But it's, it's pretty far back in the archive, but you can do that if, if you're curious. So who should we trust to lead us in the way of Jesus? We should look for someone who looks and acts like they know Jesus, and someone who is holding fast to the word of God, even when it's hard and unpopular. Now, just in case you thought Paul hadn't led us through enough crazy minefields this morning, uh, he rounds it all off by talking about false teachers. You see, if, if we're going to explore the question, who do we trust to lead us in the way of Christ, it's also worth taking a pause to also think about who do we not trust to lead us in the way of Christ? We read in verses 10 to 16, for there are many who are for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, 
but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. If we are pursuing Jesus and following him, we need to be wary of any teaching that undermines the gospel. Uh, Whether that's by flat-out rejection of the gospel, or whether that's by pleasant flattery and omission, or whether that's by just manipulative profiteering. And we see that even in the times of Paul and Titus, there were people who were teaching things which contradicted the gospel. And they were doing it for their own shameful gain. They were teaching things for their own personal benefit. The object of their teaching was not Jesus. They didn't care about leading people towards following Jesus. In fact, they were interested in getting people to follow them. And I wonder how often we think about that when we're looking for a community of faith. You know, I sometimes get concerned when I hear people say that they're shopping around for a church. Specifically, what concerns me, though, is the criteria people like to list when they're telling me what they're looking for in a church. When they say the type of music, or how expressive the congregation is, or whether people are enough like me to feel that they can fit in. And while I confess that I have judged many a church in the quality of coffee, (laughs) most of the categories we bring to finding a church community are, are frankly shallow and petty qualities of consumerism. It seems rare for me to hear someone say, I'm looking for a place that can tend and care for my soul, a church that will equip me to look and live like Jesus. And maybe these are things which people are sort of thinking way back down and they just never mention them. But I have to admit that I consider a church's capacity to tend and care for one's soul and to lead its people towards Christ. I I consider that of eternally greater importance and significance than the quality of the music and whether people look and act like me. The point of church is not whether it can meet every one of my preferences. And although there are certainly needs which churches should attend to, And I think especially when it comes to matters of accessibility uh, and acceptance of those with special needs, whether it's physical or emotional or or mental, that's something I think churches should try and attend to because needs are entirely different from preferences. Needs are about Jesus being accessible to us, no matter who we are and how we are, whereas preferences are often about supplementing Jesus. And if we're not careful, our preferences can end up keeping us from Jesus entirely. Because the point of church is to collectively gather together to fix our eyes upon the one who saved our soul. Because at the end of the day, it's Jesus that matters. Jesus is what mattered for the ex-pirates in Crete. Jesus is what mattered for the new churches in a strange and duplicitous island in the Mediterranean. Jesus is what matters for Christians here in Vancouver, and Jesus is what matters for the churches in this secular and post-everything city. For 2,000 years, the church has only ever had one message, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is fully God and fully human, who lived a perfect and sinless life and who died the most unjust and awful of deaths upon the cross and who bore the weight of our sins upon himself and who rose to life, defeating sin and death, and who ascended into heaven and sent us his Holy Spirit, so that all who would believe in him and who call upon his name shall be forgiven their sins, restored into right relationship with God, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, and given eternal life in him. 
That's the story Jesus is inviting us into. And that's the way of following him. So, who should we trust to lead us in the way of Christ? We should trust the people who are believing and teaching and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Those people whose lives prove it.